You are listening to the Power of Why podcast. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Invest Ottawa, the lead economic development agency for Canada's capital. We teamed up to produce this special series to celebrate women leading in Ottawa for International Women's Week. In support of its women founders and owners strategy, Invest Ottawa offers programs and services that enable and accelerate the growth and success of women entrepreneurs from every walk of life. Visit www.investottawa.ca slash women to learn more. This is the second episode. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Power of Why. My name is Naomi Hiley, and today I am here with Dr. Ashley Kennedy. Ashley, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks for being here. I um, absolutely love the work that you're doing, your story. I think it's definitely, well, the neuroscience space is often described as being a black box. And, you know, personally, like we're going to get into your story and how you got into the space. But I, I know a couple of individuals who, including family members who have suffered from concussions and haven't necessarily gotten the proper care. And so when I was reading more about your work, it just really resonated with me. And I know it will with a lot of um, my listeners as well. So Dr. Ashley Kennedy is the co-founder of Neurovine AI. Neurovine aims to empower concussion patients by measuring brain health and optimizing their recovery process. You and your co-founder, Dr. Matthew Kennedy, are working together hacking brain health post-concussion, combining deep technology and machine learning with the art of neuroscience. The company was created, as you've described, out of personal experience and professional need. Ashley is the daughter of a professional football player and an elite athlete herself, and she's had personal experiences with the negative impact of concussions. And for 10 years, Ashley focused her postgraduate training and research on the study of brain and human performance, uh, but felt that the years of research were stuck in the laboratory. And so you saw a need with concussion patients um, because they are essentially lost in the recovery process. And so Um, Interesting fact, for those of you who really enjoy TED Talks, Ashley presented a TED Talk called Understanding the Ethical Dance of AI in Healthcare, which you can check out in the show notes. I'm really excited to delve into with you. Uh, Thanks for being here, Ashley. Yeah, my pleasure. That's a great summary. (laughs) Um, I would love for you to get started with sharing a little bit more about your uh, origin story, your uh, inner athlete, kind of how you grew up, where you grew up, and we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I grew up in small town Ontario, and um, I come from a family of athletes. Um, Sport was kind of baked into our lives at a very young age. Uh, My sister was team captain for the um, Canadian Olympic team in 2006 for gymnastics. Um, And, you know, Ironically, she actually suffered a major concussion in the warm-up before her floor performance um, and still competed, wow. but was so disoriented that she, she didn't even know where to start her, her routine um, at the Olympics. Uh, and this is something that I didn't find out until a couple of years ago. And, you know, I think for years and years, people have just dealt with brain injuries like it's a badge of honor or it's a weakness to acknowledge the, the impact of this injury. Um, and I think over the past eight to 10 years, we, we have started to see the long-term impact of injury mm-hmm. on people's emotional and mental well-being. I was always fascinated by the role of brain health, you know, long-term over the lifespan. And, 
you know, as you mentioned, my dad played professional football um, and he, he did lose a friend uh, to suicide when we were very young. You know, he was really open about that experience and the mental health struggles that his friend had experienced um, after he retired from football. Um, you know, like a lot of the uh, football players that really struggle with concussion, he was kind of the, the guy that was, you know, in the fights, the tough guy, incredibly respected on the team because he never took a knee. Mm. Um, and so, you know, this really stuck with me. It, it drove me to study human performance in neuroscience. I um, was fortunate enough to, to run track at Stanford. Um, so I spent four years at probably one of the most innovative institutions on the planet um, and was able to build my first EEG headband as a freshman. Uh, I was wow. part of a, a research team, yeah, and they needed, they needed a new EEG headband and so just tasked a group of students to do it. And that was my first um, kind of jump off the cliff moment where, where I was like, oh, wow, this is like a Stanford professor who needs us to accomplish something. And so that experience of like having this really big task and just having to learn how to do it right. was really exciting for me. And, and that's the kind of challenge that I love, you know, when you're thrown into a situation and um, people just expect you to to find the answer, I think that's a really exhilarating experience. Uh, so I think that was kind of my first step into entrepreneurship without really even knowing it. I continued to study neuroscience. Um, I've got a PhD in exercise physiology uh, from the University of Nantes in France. So I was able to spend a little time in France and see what research looked like abroad. Uh, a PhD in motor control and neuroscience at the University of Ottawa and then sought out innovation for my postdoctoral fellowship. And, and so I was a, a postdoc um, at the Toronto Rehab Institute. Toronto Rehab Institute, like a lot of these rehabilitation institutes these days, is a really innovative place to be. Mm. Um, they, they're really fostering, you know, pushing the boundary in, in every aspect of care that they provide. Uh, and it, it's institutions like that that are going to allow the adoption of some of these really cool AI-driven or next-generation technologies into the standard of practice. So I got to work on lots of projects where wearable technologies were deployed with patients yeah. and uh, saw the impact on the patient's health, but also like their physical health, but also their emotional well-being and the emotional well-being of their care circles, so their, their family or their caregivers who now felt like there was, you know, a, a clear roadmap through the recovery journey because they had um, agency. They could, they could be part of the recovery journey because of this integration, integration of technology into their, their healthcare. So, so that's kind of the, the winding journey that I've been able to take through brain science and, and always looking for innovative technology to bake into that process. I started a, a consulting company for a couple years where I validated innovative technologies with patient populations. I was part of a research team that looked at uh, a really cool exercise paradigm for patients with early stage dementia. Um, this was, again, a way to bring the caregiver circle into that, that journey with the patient um, by integrating really engaging exercise. 
Um, so I did that for a few years and then uh, felt like I was ready to take on this entrepreneurial journey. My co-founder, who's my husband, is a family physician. He was, uh, he, he inherited a, a practice, a family medicine practice that had a lot of long-term concussion patients in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he felt he was, he was not able to manage them well because he just, he didn't have the data he needed to support that care journey. He was kind of the one that, that pushed us off the cliff. He's like, I think we can probably build you know, just a little small something that can, that can be put in the mm-hmm. patient's hands to support them and put them in the driver's seat. Oh. And over the past three years, that little small something has really blossomed into this uh, AI-driven platform. We build our own hardware. Um, yeah. So we've, we've learned like how to manufacture hardware locally, which was really uh, felt like a big lift, but has been a, a fun process. We created and validated our intellectual property, uh, built a, a really secure software architecture. So we've really built everything from the ground up and you know, had the privilege of, of watching some young, uh, kind of brilliant people added to our mission, uh, largely because of their own personal experience with brain injury in some way or another. And so we've had talent that's been added to us because of the mission-driven, yeah. um, you know, value-based approach that we're taking to healthcare. And, and just been along this journey for the past three years, watching them grow into leaders in their field. So it's, it's been really cool to, to be part of that journey with our team. That is a, a very holistic view into the past, you know, years um, from undergrad to, you know, even your early um, childhood as well. It's, I did not know the story about you essentially building a prototype for an EEG headband in school because yeah. um, as I was going through your website and looking at the technologies that you have today and the hardware and the cloud system, um, you also have an EEG headband. So the way that, you know, that all came together is really incredible. Um, before we get into kind of the work and the research that you've done, I'm wondering for the audience like to essentially ground us in this conversation. Can you just talk about, like, define, first of all, what a concussion is, what constitutes as a concussion? And if you can give us a little bit more context on the possible long-term consequences of, like, repetitive concussive hits for, like, athletes or, like, retired athletes, for example. Yeah, definitely. Um, So essentially, uh, when a concussion happens, um, the... um, Maybe I'll start actually. The brain is kind of like a, a jello substance. Um, and so it's really quite soft and it's encased in this kind of fluid and then this protective skull around it. And so when you have a, a, a brain injury, an impact of some sort, um, or even you know a car accident where you don't necessarily hit your head, but there's a massive force where you get some severe whiplash. A concussion is caused by this really soft brain hitting the skull. Um, and so a concussion is a bruise on your brain. It doesn't have to be a direct hit. It can be uh, the result of a severe whiplash. And so basically you have a bruised and bleeding brain. A concussion is, it can vary from very, very mild to very, very severe. A mild traumatic brain injury is kind of what we define as a concussion. And Um, It means that we can't see any of the brain bleed or or structural damage on uh, a scan of any sort. So CT Mm -hmm. scan or an MRI, there's 
Um, there's no structural damage with a concussion. But it doesn't mean that, it, that it's mild. It's called an, a mild TBI, but it's not necessarily mild. And, and so one of the biggest impact on the brain is actually a shearing force on the white matter. So this is the connective tissue underneath kind of the outer gray matter of your brain. And it's tearing of, these, of this white matter. Um, and white matter, you can think of almost as highways that are connecting your brain together. And so when you have a shearing of the highway, that communication is really interrupted. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be a very long lasting, significant injury to the individual, even if the event wasn't major or traumatic in, an, in and of itself. And so we have patients that come to us who had just hit their head on a, you know, underneath a sink when they were standing up. Mm -hmm. And that small event, which they really didn't think of as a concussion, can have impact that lasts years. And so we've got this kind of early acute phase of concussion, um, and that's what we typically think of as a concussion. That's when you are, you're having perhaps um, some nausea, you're having uh, memory loss, you're exhausted, you've got a really bad headache. And for most people that does subside fairly quick with within a couple of weeks that person feels like themselves again mm -hmm. um, but for about 40 percent of these concussive events there are some underlying symptoms that can last much longer for example we know in elite athletes they can feel like themselves and you know they're cleared to return back to sport but when we look in the laboratory, when we look at their functionality, it's significantly reduced. And so a lot of these patients continue to have really bad balance or they have visual neglect. They, they can't see objects coming um, from the side. It's mm -hmm. just that communication between their eyes and their, their brain is, is damaged. And so if you can imagine putting a kid back on, a field, on the field who can't see somebody running at them from the side, they're a lot more susceptible to be hit. They can't brace themselves. They can't move out of the way. On top of that, um, putting a gymnast back on a balance beam after a concussion when her balance or his balance, you know, regardless of the gender, when their balance is poor, that leaves them susceptible to subsequent injuries. So a lot of the time we're putting our athletes back on the field or back in the, you know, in the competition ring while they're still not at their peak performance. And this is what results in that repetitive concussion. So right. once you've had one concussion, if it's not dealt with properly, you're susceptible to subsequent concussions. And there's a lot of literature um, that su supports the fact that these repetitive concussions lead to a long-term brain disease called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. If you Google it, it's it's horrifying. Uh, basically, your brain eats itself from the inside out and you are left with a shriveled skeleton of a brain and that has impact on the person in so many different ways, mental health, right. um, cognitive function. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's very serious. If we were able to care for those people properly after a concussion and, and allow them to return to their baseline, provide them the tools that they need to get back to their baseline, we would put healthy people back on the field. So that's kind of a quick run through of, of the, the journey of a concussion patient. And I think probably one of the biggest challenges for a concussion patient is returning back to cognitive activities. So school or work mm -hmm. or caring for young children, <laughs> you know, whatever the demands are in your life, returning to high cognitive function is really difficult for a concussion patient. And that's 
you know, that's the first aspect that we're tackling as a company. How do we support the tools? How do we provide the tools to support a patient returning back to their their cognitive function after a confession. Right. And I've done some a little bit of reading around the lack of follow-up that follow-up care that's provided within like a certain period for patients and it's really lacking and I know for me my my brother when he was in elementary school he fell down a couple flights of stairs and immediately felt the impact and then you know, was hospitalized, but then there wasn't really anything that happened after because they couldn't see anything. And they're like, he's normal and functioning. But then there are certain things that come up with regards to being able to focus properly. And and I know a lot of people are impacted by this. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. I'm wondering, because you talked a little bit about personalization and using wearables to really collect data and really inform like all of the caregivers, the physicians, those who are involved in your recovery. So can you tell us a little bit more about the opportunities that you see in the wearable space and and where things are progressing? Yeah, for sure. I think we've seen incredible progress in other areas like heart health, you know, management of chronic diseases. There's a lot of different healthcare avenues that have been uh, significantly improved because of wearables and the amount of data that can be provided on a person's journey kind of between clinical visits. So historically, we've got a really great snapshot in the clinic. The physician, so if you're suffering from a heart condition, the physician can look at data based on a a snapshot of that person's heart health. Uh, But what wearables have done is they provide, um, they tell the rest of the story. They tell the story between those snapshots. Um, So you've got a three-day Holter monitor reading, and that's great, but it doesn't tell you what happens to their heart when they're driving and someone cuts them off or there's, you know, a really bad day diet-wise. And and what wearables have done is they've filled in those gaps so we get a complete holistic story on that person's health. The storytelling for patients who suffer from brain disorders or injuries, that doesn't exist yet. And so, you know, like you said, concussion, but brain health in in general is a black box that's invisible. And there's a huge opportunity for wearables to start filling that gap. EEG is only one of the avenues to be able to do this. It's It's a tool that looks at the electrical activity of the brain, essentially, and we can get a lot of information from that, that signal. We can talk, you know, there's there's a lot of literature that supports we can look at anxiety, depression, we can diagnose epilepsy from this EEG data. Wow. There's a wealth of information. But it's only recently that that A, EEG has become a wearable. It's been around for 110 years, but it's been this, you know, you're wired to a big machine. It's 32 leads that uh, you put EEG on by actually like using sandpaper to get a good connection between the lead and the person's brain. So that's been the his- history of EEG. But in the past, again, in the past 10 years, five years, especially EEG is starting to become a wearable. Um, and so we're getting that possibility of having a complete story told about the person's brain health. I've seen it used with some meditation apps. You obviously yeah. it's part of your technology as well. Can you share a little bit about like the app that you created and how these different tools like the headband and the heart monitor that you have play into play into their recovery process? Yeah, I can I can definitely do that. Our mission at Neurovine is to put the patient in the driver's seat of their brain health recovery journey. 
uh, while providing that data, that story to the clinician so they can make medically informed decisions for their patients. Um, and so what we do is um, we do, we have a gamified onboarding process with our patients that essentially gives patient, give, uh, tells the whole story about the person's brain health. So we're combining EEG, heart rate variability, as well as a whole bunch of other metrics that, that give us a, a really holistic view into the person's health after a concussion. And then our technology can deliver these personalized training programs to support the patient where they are in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and these training programs, they're informed by their clinician, but they continue to learn as the patient gets healthier. So they get more challenging as the patient becomes healthier. So that's kind of the core of what we're building. And we're using EEG to get the patient back to work or school, get them back to their cognitive activities and preventing them from overexerting themselves cognitively. So we want our patients active, but we don't want them to push through neural fatigue to the point where they're getting symptoms and just not progressing properly. Mm -hmm. There's um, quite a bit, and you've spoken about this before, quite a bit of discussion around integrating like AI into into healthcare. And I'm wondering at a high level what you see as some of the challenges with being able to do this, maybe around um, equity, around privacy, and just making sure that there's ethics throughout this whole entire process as well. Yeah, this is a huge topic. It's really being uh, discussed by experts around the globe right now. It's a, a really important thing to get right. Um, regardless of the healthcare space that you're in, whether it's diagnostics or, you, you know, using AI to automate some of the more mundane tasks in the hospital. It's a really exciting opportunity that we have in front of us, and we're just at the beginning of this journey. One of the biggest challenges, I think, is the fact that there's so much data that you have point-of-care clinicians saying, I don't have time to skim through a huge amount of data. And I don't need your analytics to tell me something that I already know intuitively, you know, just because of my gut, uh, my gut knowledge that, you know, I've seen this come through the emergency room 150 times. I know exactly what it is. I don't need an AI-driven solution to tell me what it is when I already know what it is. And so it's, the onus is on industry and the collaboration between industry and clinicians to build technology that provides AI that's context aware, that's precise, that's personalized and predictive and, and proactive. Um, so you're providing information that may have been missed uh, rather than providing stuff that's already, you know, assessed by the clinician. And I think that's one of the biggest, it's one of, it's one of the three biggest things that clinicians are um, one of the reasons they're not adopting some of these AI-driven technologies right off, right off the bat because um, they're already really good at their job. So if the technology you're providing is not making them better and faster, it's just annoying. They don't want to spend the time learning it. On top of that, the technology that we build has to be transparent. And so that cannot be a black box. It can't be making decisions that the clinicians don't understand. Uh, so that's the, that's the third thing. And then the third component is probably the most interesting area. Um, the data that we use to train these algorithms needs to be inclusive. And so um, the, the heaviest lift, the most amount of time 
that we spend from the data science perspective is collecting data to build our algorithms. And if that data is collected from college students between the ages of 18 and 24 who are otherwise healthy, that's what your algorithms are going to predict. And so we need to have inclusive data from the entire population to, to deliver uh, algorithms and decision-making tools that are applicable and accurate. And, that, and that's a huge struggle. You know, we certainly encounter that at Neurovine. And I think, you know, as, as our algorithms continue to learn, we need to make sure it's not just learning on the population that can afford to buy our technology, right. but that mm -hmm. the algorithms are built to address populations that also are not buying our technology. And this is one of the, you know, the really hot topics right now in terms of using AI to democratize healthcare. That's like kind of a, a buzzword right now. You know, this data-driven medicine has the capacity to reduce healthcare costs globally. Possibly that's true, but if our algorithms are based on the North American population, they're not going to transfer to other countries. And it's time uh, intensive and cost intensive to collect those data sets in different countries and some of the um, developing nations. And so it's a really, really important thing to be talking about. And if we don't get it right, it's going to deepen that that digital divide between some of the rich countries and some of the countries that are developing. Yeah, I think uh, I could go on for hours on this, but I think <laughs> that's one of the biggest and most exciting areas that we do have the capacity to make healthcare more affordable and accessible globally, but we have to get it right. Um, and there are lots of, you know, non-for-profits and the WHO has some really great policies and initiatives to make this, to push this forward. Uh, but it's going to be collaboration between scientists and clinicians and organizations like the WHO to get it right. Hey there, thanks for tuning into this episode. If you are enjoying the conversation, make sure to share it with a friend, take a screenshot, spread the word. It really allows me to bring on more incredible guests as we continue to level up in the podcasting space. You mentioned you know, physicians, clinicians quite a bit in terms of the successful maybe adoption of these tools into, into how they already do their work today and how, you know, if disruption is going to happen in the space, you need them on board. Absolutely. Yeah. In a previous conversation, we kind of discussed how this space and just healthcare is, whether you're speaking in the U.S. specifically it's not really accessible to a lot of individuals and mm -hmm. fully in terms of insurance provider and what's covered as well, that there are a lot of groups that aren't able to access these resources. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to how we can make these resources more accessible, um, especially when the language out there is that we're reducing costs by integrating these technologies as well. So why aren't we seeing those things translate to the consumer of these products and services? Yeah, so there's two kind of answers to this question. There is a resistance to adopt some of these technologies by clinicians. And so if you don't have clinicians prescribing this to all of their patients, um, it's difficult to get it in the hands of all of these patients. Uh, what's happening right now is um, some of this AI analytics, um, these new technologies are being adopted by consumers who can afford it. 
and those consumers bring the technologies to their doctor. And then um, the doctor will probably say, yeah, fine, I'll incorporate it because you're excited about it. So that, that's kind of the path to the clinician right now. The way that it needs to go for it to be equitable is the clinician um, needs to integrate it into their practice. Um, they need to be incentivized to do that. So that's an that's a American Medical Association or provincially, that's, that's an important mandate to be able to incentivize clinicians for using technologies that are transparent, are delivering precise, uh, timely analytics, and are providing that, that patient data that tells the whole story. So we need to incentivize clinicians to prescribe it. That's the first and most important um, step. That's happening slowly. Medicine is, is so slow to change. We see AI being used in a whole bunch of other fields where things can move faster, but medicine is slow to change because it's evidence-based, which is great, but it also needs to change. So the incentivization is the first major uh, roadblock, I would say. They, they, these physicians need to be incentivized. Um, continuing medical education needs to train them to see the importance of some of these technologies, and we need um, management at some of these provider networks to understand the importance and the cost reduction for the facility of integrating these technologies. So it's, it's a lot of work to get up to speed to adopt something new, but it can, it can save a huge amount of money for the organization. Mm -hmm. So from the clinical physician side, um, that's what really needs to happen. Payers also need to start covering some of these technologies for their patients. From the industry side and the academic side, as we start showing evidence for improved healthcare and reduced costs, and, you know, managing chronic diseases, preventative medicine, if we can start showing the economic benefit and the evidence for the effectiveness of our solution, payers will follow. Again, payers, whether it's, you know, provincial, OHIP, things like that, covering technologies, or private payers in the United States, they're also slow to move. But there is, you know, there is some momentum because we're starting as, as industry starting to show the benefit. What's happening is that we have these um, employers who see, who can move faster. And so you've got, you know, an employer like Coca-Cola, for example, they have their own private employer insurance program and they can move a little bit faster. And so the average employer program, I think, I think the stat is they've integrated on average five digital health solutions that their employees have access to because they can move faster. They see the impact and again, it's, it's patient-driven. The patients are bringing these technologies and saying, for me to be happy, I really need this integrated into my healthcare plan. So yeah, awareness, incentivization financially, and on the industry side, we need to continue to deliver transparent, timely, accessible tools to push this forward. But mm -hmm. it's a slow-moving machine, um, but there's progress being made both in Canada and the United States. Yeah, and... Obviously, you know, you mentioned what industry, which includes yourself, um, are doing as well. And it's really tough building a company. And I've read some comments you've made about building Neurobine and conversations that you've had with investors and other individuals who love the idea and, you know, your commitment and your knowledge and your passion to working towards better solutions to improve like people's lives the way that you folks are. And then there are comments that there's a long road ahead and there's going to be many hurdles. I'm wondering if you can kind of share with us the bigger vision that you see and 
why this work is so integral to our society. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we live in an age where the consumer um, is very entitled, which is, I use that in a positive way. So, so um, I really need Ziploc bags. I'm going to order them on Amazon and they're going to be here tomorrow morning. We, we are right. used to that kind of instant gratification. Me too. Like, obviously, that's something that I, with three young children, I, I, I use Amazon quite a bit. <laughs> um, and we're starting to have those kinds of demands for the healthcare system as well. Um, and I think that's right. The patients need to be part of their, their health journey um, for proactive medicine, for management of chronic disease patients need to be engaged in that journey. Otherwise, you've got, you know, high pharmaceutical prescription rates and, you know, failure to thrive in a huge percentage of the population, where if, if we could incorporate some behavioral health modifications delivered through a lot of these digital therapeutics that we're building, if, the, if we could provide patients with what they're asking for, which is to be part of this journey through some of these behavioral health applications, we would see a massive decrease in the cost of our healthcare ecosystem. We would see people uh, with these chronic diseases thriving. We would see family care, uh, family members who are also caregivers thriving and knowing how to help, help their loved ones. Right. So this is a huge shift that's coming. And uh, we see Neurovine as being the, the tool that makes brain health visible to patients and their caregivers across a lot of different brain disorders and injuries. You know, I would love to see Neurovine prescribed alongside medication for epilepsy. I'd love to see Neurovine supporting patients as they recover from a stroke because the technology we're providing is engaging and you can track your progress. You don't feel like you're stuck in a rut. You can track your progress. You know what's helping, you know what's not helping. So you're really engaged in part of that journey. The software system that we've built uh, translates really nicely into a, a huge array of different brain health disorders. And the core technology doesn't change, but we can deliver these really personalized, gamified, engaging therapeutic mod modules to different populations. So that's kind of our big vision at Neurovine is to empower these patients and to support their family members and caregivers through this journey that Historically has been invisible, but technology-wise, we now have the ability to make it visible and tangible and to affect change. And something that you can use to improve your life, action-oriented yeah. very much. Absolutely. Um, I'd be curious to know before I ask you a question about like what's really helped you prototype, validate, uh, build um, really useful technologies for your patients. For folks who are listening, that maybe, you know, struggle or had a concussion in the past or no family members and loved ones who, who have, what are some things that you're seeing be prescribed? I don't know if you can speak to this more generally, but things that you're seeing as treatment that mm -hmm. are really insufficient and like, what should people be looking out for when it comes to their recovery process? For concussions specifically? For concussions specifically, yeah. Yeah. Historically, um, we, we have thought of concussion as this injury that happens and then you just need to rest until you feel better. And that is, that's not the medicine that you need after you've hurt your brain. We know now that if you've got some sort of clinical oversight to make sure you're not overdoing it, we know that after a concussion, 
exercise is medicine. And so if you can do the appropriate type of exercise after a concussion, if you've got um, a clinician that can supervise this, um, we know that exercise is really, really important after a concussion. Um, some things to watch out for, we know that concussion can severely impact mental health. Um, and, and so, you know, new or worsening anxiety and depression are things to really keep a pulse on. Um, I've had a lot of patients that have come through our program that um, they were doing all of the, the physical things properly, so getting all the rehab that they need, but they didn't have the mental health support. And that was a huge roadblock for them. And so making sure that post-concussion, you're really watching out for anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts and that the resources are provided to support the patient in that area. Something that's often overlooked post-concussion is your, the way that your eyes and your brain function together. I think that's probably the symptom that lasts longest and is most often undetected. And so if you've had a concussion, you know, I'd encourage you to go get your eyes tested as well. Uh, there's a lot of really easy training that can be delivered by an, an eye doctor that could save you a lot of grief in the future. Um, so having your eyes checked, making sure your mental health is really well supported and that you're physically active. You're not just sitting in a dark room until you feel better, but that early on you're getting out, getting physically active, whether it's walking or on a stationary bike, that, that activity is important. I think the final thing I'd add that is really helpful um, is mindfulness meditation. There's a lot of online uh, concussion focused mindfulness and meditation programs. We've got one, we've got a series on our website that you can access for free. If, if I have time, I'll just, I'll just say one more thing about this. So when you have a concussion, your brain's firing on all cylinders all of the time. And if you can practice mindfulness and meditation and get good at that, you can teach your brain how to turn off so that when you need to use it, you start using it more effectively and you're not burning through the gas that you've got, that little bit of fuel that you have quickly, but you're doing it in a, in a more efficient and effective way and that you allow it to rest and turn off. So mindfulness and meditation are huge. Okay. Um, I wasn't planning on bringing this up, but I watched a, another TED Talk by a doctor named Balaguru Ravi. And he talked about uh, sports like the sports medicine community transitioning to a more active method of treatment, like aerobic exercise um, mm -hmm. for, for concussion treatment. And when you mentioned movement and exercise as something to be, like if you can do it with a clinician who can kind of monitor you while you're doing that, is that what you mean, aerobic exercise? I'm wondering your thoughts on this approach. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Getting your heart rate up. Um, has huge impact on your nervous system and, and can almost retrain your nervous system to work properly. That aerobic exercise, there's even some research that is showing anaerobic exercise. So like if you love being in the gym, then you've got good clinical oversight and you want to start with low weight. There's some important benefits to whatever kind of exercise you love to do. If you've got the clinical oversight, I really encourage you to get back to some physical activity. That's wonderful. Okay, thank you for uh, sharing that, Ashley. Um, <clears throat> I'm wondering, uh, this is a question I like to ask all my guests at the end is, you know, something that's happening in your industry that you're keeping your eye on right now, maybe if we didn't have the space to talk about it, you know, you talked a lot about AI and integrating data into the space. I'm wondering if there's something kind of on the periphery that you have your eye out on and think that is really fascinating. Yeah, so 
Neurovine falls into this digital therapeutic sector. And what we're seeing is a slow but steady change in pharmaceutical companies where when you're prescribed a drug, you're also prescribed a digital therapeutic and it's dose prescribed. So like you'll get 150 pills and three months of digital therapeutic intervention. And when those two are married, we're seeing much better outcome for the patient. And so I'm really excited to see pharmaceutical companies who are starting to build their own digital therapeutic applications. And I think that that's something to watch out for in the next couple of years is, is when you're prescribed an, an anti-anxiety medication, you may also be prescribed a digital therapeutic that addresses some of your behavioral health. Mm. So this is not just a, you know, a patient going to find the best application they can to support their mental health, but it's actually going to be prescribed by your physician. And there's these digital pharmacies that are being created that can dispense these therapeutics. So I think that's really cool. I'm also very interested to see what happens with some of these, you know, Google, some of these big guys, Apple, Amazon, getting into healthcare and what it's going to look like to have a completely digital healthcare system. So they could get it right, they could get it wrong, but there'll be a huge change in the healthcare industry um, as these big players start to come in. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that um, because they are making their way into healthcare because it's a massive industry and I think they definitely see the opportunity there. But what you mentioned just as a caveat, like the importance of getting it right and everything that you mentioned earlier is going to be very important. Thanks for being here, Dr. Ashley Kennedy. I really appreciated chatting with you. Um, What's the best place for people to connect with you online? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to our website, neurovine.ai. You can connect with us on our socials. We're really active and responsive there. If you've got questions, you know, uh, we've got kind of an email connect that we, we respond to every email that comes in. So send us your questions and get connected with us and, and try some of our meditation programs. Wonderful. I definitely have a friend that I'm going to send that over to. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who is taking the time to listen to this episode of The Power of Why. We'll catch you in the next one. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Invest Ottawa, the lead economic development agency for Canada's capital. We teamed up to produce this special series to celebrate women leading in Ottawa for International Women's Week. In support of its women founders and owners strategy, Invest Ottawa offers programs and services that enable and accelerate the growth and success of women entrepreneurs from every walk of life. Visit www.investottawa.ca women to learn more.